I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Dilloff. Dean, I've got a lot of chaotic energy on this side of things tonight, and I just need to, I just need to get them out on the table so everyone knows where I'm coming from. That's the best policy. Yeah. My wife is away, so my dog is in the room with me, and she's, she's unhappy about it. She doesn't want to be in the room. She doesn't want to be outside the room either. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you up front, there's going to be some dog noises. She's the uh, unofficial third, third host of this week. Um, don't ask her any questions though, because uh, she doesn't know the answer. Okay, so that's a real Franciscan kind of uh, episode, I think. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Uh, sister, podcaster, dog. Um, (laughs) so that's the first bit of chaos, but then the second is that the the, my microphone stand broke this week, and I have to I had to order like a little replacement stand because I didn't want to buy a whole new microphone. (laughs) Um, but it's not here yet. And I have to hold my microphone as if I'm doing like a stand up comedy routine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right now, it's the worst feeling in the entire world. <laughs> so I don't know what to do with any of this, but uh, here I am just <laughs> before you, our listeners, and my dog, just with the worst, the worst podcasting setup anyone could possibly imagine. <laughs> Man, we should have gotten like uh, headlines or something, 10, 10 best headlines from Christian media that you could riff on or uh, just get some classic bananas level um, stand up <laughs> bits that we could play just to really get get into the mood over there. Oh Yeah, for sure. Um, I will tell you about this really quick, though. Just I feel like every week I have to bring a new um, a new crazy observation about the UK. And I do have one that I do want to bring to you. I don't know like what exactly the cultural norm here is, but for whatever reason, yesterday and today, I just started seeing all these advertisements around for like Christmas dinners. Like everyone is like, every <laughs> restaurant is talking about whatever their Christmas dinner is. Like the Indian place down the street is just like, it's even telling me like, we've got a Christmas dinner and you're going to love it. <laughs> I learned about this, uh, this great new UK character that is, I guess, associated with Christmas in some way. Here, one of the norms for a Christmas dinner is this thing called Colin the Caterpillar. And it is a, okay. a chocolate sponge cake that this um, very fancy grocery store kind of sells called Marks and Spencer. But anyways, it's like a it's a, a chocolate rolled cake that has a little caterpillar face on the front of it. And I got to tell you, I love okay. it. I love everything about this guy. I can't wait to eat one. <laughs> but I just love that this. It's like this canonical character that they do every year. There's always some kind of new Colin the Caterpillar innovation and uh, I can't wait to see what this year brings uh, with Colin. Uh, pretty excited about it. I feel like that is such an incredibly UK thing because, I mean, a lot of countries in Europe, they have all kinds of very funny characters that accompany the nativity or are just sort of around at Christmas time. Like, uh, you know, in, in Catalonia, uh, some friends of mine from there, they have a very funny log that poops presents every year. I think that is great. They have a this guy called the Caganer, a little kid who poops in the nativity scene, all very funny characters. <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of strangely fecal characters around Christmas for whatever reason in Spain. I feel like Colin the Caterpillar is like the most tame version of that you could ever get. Like the UK is like, well, we've got to have somebody, some extra character, but they can just be the most innocent possible thing you can imagine. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. So, something else very interesting about this, though, is that uh, so, so there's this like really, really posh grocery store. It's called M&S and it's like... Uh, it's like think of a Target, but it's like kind of fancier than that. 
Um, okay. So they they're the ones who've originated Colin the Caterpillar, but um, all of the other grocery <laughs> store, stores have also come up with their own Caterpillar cake to compete. <laughs> so, for example, there's a, a grocery store here called Morrison's, which is I like it. It's but they have one. There's called Morris the Caterpillar. Aldi's is called Cuthbert the Caterpillar, and I think this is great. <laughs> just a lot of <laughs> just a lot of caterpillars out here. People love them. They love the, to eat them. How recent is this like manufactured? Part of Christmas. I don't know how recent it is, but it's it's a recent a recent invention. I would say it has to be. <laughs> Wikipedia does not give me an exact date, so it's got to be recent, but not that recent. Okay, I'm looking at it now. I've looked up the caterpillar on Wikipedia. First of all, <laughs> the way you described it and the way that it was in my head is not the way that it looks, and I don't know exactly oh, how no. to express that except to say that. There may be something fecal about this uh, this tradition after all. It's just sort of not on the face of it, which is also a very UK thing. Um, a lot of variations here. I'm I'm shocked. I've got to I've got to get there. There's also apparently Count Colin gummies uh, for Halloween. Yeah, that's the Halloween one. You huh. know, I'm going to be knee deep in these bad boys. Count Colin gummies. <laughs> I'm going to get it. There's also a Count Colin cake and I'm <laughs> I'm going to eat it. It's going to be great. I've actually never been to a Marks and Spencer's because it's like a little bit too expensive for me. And the closest one is a little bit far, but I'm going to go to get my my um my capitalism approved like real branded <laughs> Colin Caterpillar. I don't want the old version. I've also uh there's there's also like a a recipe that you can make one at home, but listen kids, don't don't believe it. <laughs> you don't want the Colin Caterpillar <laughs> that you have at home. You want to get the one from the store. It's okay, just what you Now wait do. a minute though. There is I'm learning here Charlie the Caterpillar which is at uh, co-op a uh, consumer co-op in the UK and I feel like that is the one that you're sort of obligated to get as a, a socialist person in the UK <laughs> maybe I don't think it's uh, I don't think co-op is as cooperative as you think it is but uh, I, I see the <laughs> logic there and maybe you're right uh, I could you know what I, I feel like I might have to get several and just sort of stack them up against each other that's true you could get several and sort of uh, just take the head off of them and make the longest caterpillar that you could possibly make. And I bet, I bet it's a recent American who's moved to the UK. You could really turn that into a local media story. I think that I probably could. The Wikipedia also mentions that you can get a wedding cake, a, a Colin the Caterpillar wedding cake. And I think that that's very funny. Like, <laughs> do you want to make sure that your partner leaves you before you even get married? This is how you do it. <laughs> That is insane, and I do want to see a call on the Caterpillar wedding cake right now. Hang on, I have to Google it. Sorry, there's going to be something more to this episode, but not yet. Uh, I'm not ready to move on. Call on the Caterpillar wedding cake. Wow, there's sort of a bride and groom version of each Caterpillar, and uh, that's how they decided to do it. Really heteronormative, I think unfortunate. Um, I, su I suppose you could mix and match it, though, and it'd be fine. I mean, it would almost have to be, right? <laughs> It would almost it would almost have to be right. Yeah, just a little behind the production here. Matt had to step away to um, take care of his dog for a minute. And as he did, obviously, I've just been Googling calling the Caterpillar content. And I just want to let you know, Matt, that uh, there is a forum called UKBride.co.uk. And in 2017, <laughs> someone did ask if anyone had had calling the Caterpillar cakes for their wedding cake. And uh, a number of people are making very funny jokes, but someone did say that they are 50 pounds each and each cake served 40 people. And further in the thread, there are a few pictures, at least two pictures of wedding couples cutting the caterpillar with a giant knife. So um, it can be done and it has been done at least two times uh, since 2017. <laughs> Two times is not enough times. I, <laughs> I want I want a cow on the caterpillar at every wedding, marking the <laughs> the great sacrament that we all know and love. <laughs> when um, you finally become Presbyterian and uh, they do whatever Protestants do to say that you're a real member of their church or whatever, uh, I feel like you should have a call on the caterpillar at your like confirmation party. All right, folks, you've heard a lot about Colin the caterpillar, but get ready to hear about Carl the caterpillar. That's right. We're talking about Karl Marx this week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about the Communist <laughs> Manifesto, a flawless segue. And um, <laughs> you're, you're welcome for that. <laughs> Um, it's been a minute since we've talked about Marxism, I think, proper. And today we're going to do that in maybe a kind of postmodern-y sort of way, which is great. It's part of our brand, and I think it works. <laughs> a thing that Marxists hate, but too bad for them. It's a thing that Marxists hate, but if they knew it was good for them, they would not hate it so much. 
They only hate it a little <laughs> bit, just as much as I do. Um, so I was taking a gander <laughs> at this uh, very cool book that came out really recently uh, by Ch- uh, by China Mieville. Um, you might know him as the guy who wrote Kraken, a book about a magical squid in London. Um, but he also has a new book called A Spectre Haunting. And in this book, he is kind of he's writing about the Communist Manifesto. And there's a lot to it, and it's very interesting. Check it out. It's great. Cool book recommendation. But something he does in the book that I think is really fascinating is he makes the case that the manifesto itself has a kind of religious function. For Miaville, it's kind of like a type of catechesis that you might go through, or it's a confession of uh, a type of faith that the world doesn't have to be as it is which is to say bad, right? It could be better than it is. And in it, uh, he says that the manifesto calls people to a type of committed fidelity, just kind of like, uh, kind of like reading the gospels does, right? Like you read the gospels and you hear about the kingdom of God, you hear about the type of world that we could be having. And Mieville says that the manifesto is not actually that different. Um, So uh, it's a, it's something that you read where you have a type of fidelity to it, but you kind of recognize too, that, you know, it's not perfect the way that it is, especially in 2023, Um, but it's the idea that, uh, you read it and you think that, well, you know, the world doesn't have to be one where a small group of people disadvantage the many for the sake of their profits, right? It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and in that spirit of committed fidelity, not only to the Christian faith, but also to the communist faith, (laughs) that one, uh, (laughs) we thought we'd, we'd make some space to chat about one of the classics, the communist manifesto. Uh, we've done explainer episodes on the manifesto before, but we're not going to do a 101 today. That would be, I don't know, you can go back and listen to it. That's fine. But we're going to do something different. We're going to think through the question that Miaville asks in his book, uh, which is, what does it mean to be a person in 2023 and be someone who's also committed to the vision of the world for better and for worse that's presented in the manifesto? Uh, so it's just kind of thinking through, like, what does it mean to be a person who feels some type of like fidelity towards the communist manifesto who thinks that, you know, has something important to say, but also like, what does it mean to be that person? Like, what does it mean to be like an activist who's engaged with that text in like a productive way? Or what does it mean to try to be like, you know, not, not tackling it academically necessarily, but what does it mean to like live in, live in the world as a person uh, in 2023, but still try to find like something meaningful in this. Dean, you've read the Communist Manifesto a bunch of times with me. <laughs> Is it something that you find meaningful, interesting? Is it an, an academic text to you? Is it something that grasps you in, in a real way? Do you have like, I don't know, does the, the thing that Miaville says about it ring true to you that there's some type of fidelity you have towards it? Yeah, uh, I appreciate, by the way, this great sort of youth pastor question of, uh, you know, making the manifesto relevant for us today, um, closing that hermeneutical gap. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, I just finished teaching a class on Marxism and Christianity, and we didn't read uh, all the great texts by Marx directly, but read kind of a lot of different ones. And uh, one thing that I really tried to stress in the class is that you really have to pay attention to like the genre of writing, especially when you're dealing with politics. Like, what is a text for and what does it do? And I think about that, that a lot when I think about what the manifesto means now, because it's a different kind of book than like reading Capital or something. Uh, a manifesto is not a technical um systematic kind of text you know it's it's a manifesto it's a declaration uh, it's something that's manifesting a particular uh, way of of thinking about the world imagining the world and even being in the world and i think that the key is not to be like well marx and engels they got like this part right and that part wrong and you're sort of trying to like read into the manifesto i don't know like retroactively where did the prophecy kind of go right and which prophecies have yet to be fulfilled i think a lot of people read the manifesto that way I think it's more like, what does the text kind of signal about what we really need to actually change the the state of things? And in that sense, I think the manifesto is still super relevant. You know, it has its uh, its finger on the pulse of uh, the fundamental contradiction of of the economics of capitalism between the workers and the the bosses, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And that is as true today as it was in the 1800s. And I think in that sense, it's like, still a perennially available text like it matters because it's still signaling that we shouldn't do that and we have a world that's still doing that so whatever happens in the in the particulars or whatever kind of things should be updated or deepened or 
uh, even rethought. Nevertheless, like I like the way that uh, Mievel puts it with this kind of committed fidelity, like to have a, a commitment or a faithfulness to that text is not to be like every single line of it is exactly right. And you kind of have to map it onto the world, but to say, I want to find myself in the, the groove of a world that's kind of cast by that text. And I think that's something that so many Christians have done uh, all over the world, right? Like you see that when you read someone like Ernesto Cardinal, who is uh, kind of activated by reading Marx, not so that he can, I guess, abandon his faith and become like a programmatic Marxist or something, but because he sees something resonating there, like there's a shared horizon or, or eschatological vision. Uh, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Is is the manifesto still important to you over there in Scotland in 2023? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. You know, it reminds me a lot of um, this other book that we talk about every now and again that Simon Critchley wrote uh, called Faith of the Faithless. And in it, he kind of talks about religious faith in a few different ways, not in terms of like truth, but he talks about it in terms of another word, which is something you can only get away with in academic books. But he talks about it in terms of troth, like betrothal, <laughs> like uh, not not unlike what Miaville saying here, like your fidelity towards it. Right. Whether or not you're you're willing to stay coupled with it or something, maybe is a, a way to think about it. And I think that's pretty good. Right. It's not that like um, the Communist Manifesto or Christianity either, <laughs> whichever one we're talking about. It's not true in like the literalist or fundamentalist way of thinking about it. Like like being an evangelical about the Communist Manifesto would be really weird, <laughs> though. I mean, plenty of people do it, unfortunately. But I think uh, anyways, this idea about fidelity is great that you recognize that like there's something about it that does unite you with other people and sort of a common cause and a common project uh, while also recognizing that it's not, you know, Perfect. Or you can't completely map it on very easily to the world that we live in today. There's there's going to be errors and failures and just differences. And that's also OK. Mm -hmm. And also, I think in the spirit of the manifesto, right, that you want to be able to recognize those kinds of um, shortcomings so that you can do a better job uh, in the future and continue kind of building the, the movement that you need to overthrow the situation that it tries to lay out. So I think that's a pretty helpful framework for kind of getting into the manifesto and like what we're doing with it here. Um, you know, we're asking questions not to debunk it or to assert its absolute truth, but to um, think about our relationship to it and like what it still does and how it functions maybe. So let's just dive into it. In the manifesto, we get like a big picture of capitalism rooted in a materialist analysis that paints a picture of the way that capitalism is like always changing and very dynamic, but it has also like a ultimate conclusion um, in the, the, the workers who are the grave diggers of capitalism. Um, <laughs> so Dean, do you want to talk about some of that part? Like how is it that Marx talks about capitalism? I mean, Marx and Engels, he's in the mix too, but, <laughs> but Marx, how does he talk about capitalism? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think um, the real, contribution of the manifesto is is exactly that the kind of analysis that uh, Marx and Engels put forward and how it's different from other forms of socialism that were on offer you know we've talked about this on the show in the past that um, there were kind of a lot of Christian socialists also running around during the time of Marx and Engels and in fact they like worked with some of them and organized with them in different contexts so they weren't ignorant as to like other ways of thinking about both capitalism and socialism and nevertheless, even though the manifesto is trying to do something very different on purpose, and they have some pretty choice words for Christian socialism <laughs> that I think are actually important, uh, yeah. there is a lot for uh, for Christians to kind of gain out of it, too. Whether Marx and Engels would say that you can just do that, I guess I don't really care. But uh, there's something really important there. And the two things that I always kind of lock on to are that, first of all, there's kind of a way of thinking about capitalism that's trying to see it as more than just like bad morality or bad values. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But the idea that there is a logic to capital that whether you're a, you know, quote unquote, good or bad person or a nice person or a mean person, we're all kind of caught up in a certain economic like program. And we find our place within that program based on how we relate to production. And I think that is like an approach to thinking about capitalism that is still very unique and one that people uh, ought to keep on thinking about. It's not like Marx and Engels are the only people who think in that way, but they do want to put that sort of methodology to work in a, a revolutionary way, which I think is great. 
And the second thing that I think is really useful is that for them, capitalism isn't like a static thing. So it has a logic to it, but it's not just like, I don't know, um, going through the motions. It's very dynamic. And as you said, Matt, it's like always changing. And the quote that at least I always kind of remember one of the, uh, you know, like when you when you grow up reading um, the Bible and you have like Bible study and there's a handful of Bible quotes that you memorize. This is like maybe one of the the manifesto quotes that sticks in my brain. Uh, but they say the bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. And I think that's really the key that the bourgeoisie is always it, it's like a revolutionary agent. It's always changing, uprooting things. And not revolutionary in the way that, you know, Marx would want to be a revolutionary necessarily. Um, revolutionary because they want to continue um, extracting value uh, wherever they can. And the process of extracting value really depends on kind of finding lots of innovative ways to uh, outdo your competitors or cut costs here or there or screw over working people in some way or raise your prices without, you know, getting a backlash. Like there's lots of different things that are involved financially. And of course, there are like other uh, other innovations that capitalists try to uh, uh, attain, you know, technology and so on in order to create new markets and all these kinds of things. So the idea that, first of all, there's an approach to capitalism that has a that can identify the, the logic underneath all the kind of moralism about it. And then secondly, the idea that that logic is also really dynamic and kind of produces these changes and that the economy is always changing for me, those are like the two big things that stick out. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Matt? What's the the big sort of story about capitalism they tell that maybe hangs with you? Yeah, totally. I mean, the thing about revolutionizing production is, I think, the big one. Um, you mentioned, okay, but I think to maybe even preface that a bit more, you mentioned that there's a, a particular logic to capitalism, and we could talk about that logic in a lot of different ways, and people have done it in the Marxist tradition a lot of different ways, but the logic is accumulation, right? Like it's going to do whatever it takes to um, expand and grow and continue making more profits. And, you know, when it can't do it in one way or in one country or it um, or, you know, these like sort of networks of uh, capitalist production uh, come to sense some kind of like obstacle to its uh, to its accumulation and to its growth, it's going to find ways to like steamroll those and make um, everything like globally uh, fit into like one particular um, uh, like economic model or <laughs> economic like uh, vision or image. Um, Marx and Engels write that the bourgeoisie by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production by the immensely facilitated means of communication draws all even the most barbarian nations into civilization. Um, <laughs> some, some particularly pointed rhetoric here. Um, it goes on to um, say some things later it, that, that I think kind of drive the point, though. Capitalism compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. I think this is a helpful explanation of um, how capitalism works. I mean, this one, we could, we could talk about, you know, maybe the ways that um, Mark, there's like some dissonance with this particular reading of capitalism in a few minutes, but this is helpful because it's, it's true. I mean, everywhere you see the mechani the machinations of capitalism trying to force every economy on the planet, um, subsistence economies, whatever into a, a capitalist model. And if it, if they don't do it, you know, they're not going to have access to <laughs> all kinds of other things like to pay down their debts and, and whatnot with the IMF and the world bank and all these other kind of, formations but i think marx and engels are are locating something true and right and important about capitalism and and the way that it works at its core it's all about accumulating more things and in the um in the drive to do that it's going to constantly force everything you know into a particular mold of um of functioning so that it can better accumulate these things yeah, I mean, there's also such a great theological line there, right, about creating the world after its own image, a kind of yeah. antichrist uh, moment, which is great. Um, but I think that's also one reason to have a kind of, or one reason that I feel I have maybe a sort of committed fidelity to the vision that's cast there, that um, there's something in the manifesto that is able to talk about it, talk about capitalism, both kind of like 
in these scientific ways and in ways that just give you the real gravity of the system that uh, it does kind of draw everything into itself. You know, if you're a Christian, like the the kind of metaphors that come to mind for me at least are like Moloch, you know, the big spooky bad god in the uh, the Hebrew Bible that um, people feed their kids to and stuff like that, like, uh, which is also a, a really popular image in like 1920s, 30s, kind of Gilded Era, even um, cartoons like representing capitalist greed. They often use Moloch as a, a symbol for it. The idea that there's some kind of... Um, like spirit of capitalism, even within that materialist analysis is such a uh, impressive thing in the manifesto as well. You know, you get a sense that it's really like a force in the world that is imposing itself uh, on other people. It's that kind of powers and principalities sort of thing. Totally. Um, I think that's right. Well, let me read this last piece here and then we can talk about what does it mean to think about capitalism in this particular way in 2023? Um, Marx and Engels write that the essential conditions for the existence and for the sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between workers. The advance of industry whose involuntary promoters, the bourgeoisie, replaces the isolation of the laborers due to competition by the revolutionary combination due to association. Um, so what you have is just like, you, you know, wage labor is like the whole way that capitalism functions that, you know, you're not, there's, there's not serfs, they're wage laborers who are going to be paid for their labor time, uh, for the production or whatever. But, um, interestingly enough, Marx goes on to say and says what the bourgeoisie therefore produces above all are its own grave diggers. It's fall and the victory of the proletariat are unequal, are equally inevitable. And from like a theoretical point of view, you could say that Marx is kind of using some, you know, fiery rhetoric here to say that it's inevitable. But there is a sense in which Marx thinks that, you know, the workers will will rise up, that be, that capitalism forces the workers into a particular class of people socially, right, that will be so hard up and hard done to that they will have no choice but to, you know, to to raise up together in one form or another and like um, move past capitalism to some other kind of society. Um, this is pretty, I, I mean, this this gets worked out in Marx in some different ways even. It's not like, there's not like one clear answer to exactly how this works, but uh, this, is, this is a pretty key feature, I think, of Marx's thinking that um, because capitalism will like form workers basically into a class that 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 class of workers will inevitably become sort of like revolutionary and uh, will will even overthrow capitalism itself. Right. I mean, that's the the big debate, I guess, around the manifesto in general is how much of this is like predetermined or kind of, you know, capitalism will inevitably unavoidably kind of destroy itself because of the the ways that it organizes working people and so on. Um, like how much of that is inevitable and how much of that is just like Marx identifying the unique power of labor or whatever, you know, Marxists have debated about this for a very long time. But I do think that the the big contribution, whether we have maybe a more like predetermined view or a more open view, the contribution is to note that there is a particular power in the working class, right? They are the yeah. grave diggers of capital. Um, whether or not they can do that <laughs> or like recognize that <laughs> or what it takes to sort of get them there. I think that's like a, a whole, you know, extra set of problems. And the fact is like no country that has ever been socialist or communist has ever become that way because of uh, <laughs> this kind of struggle, you know, like um, communist countries are that have had communist governments at least have always not been in uh, countries with developed capitalist economic uh, systems. But I mean, I guess you could make a case that certain like social democracies maybe have intuited this, but not pushed it all the way or something like that. Um, but the the key anyway is that I think Marx does sort of put his uh, I don't know. He just sort of like discovers maybe what what the unique um, the unique kind of power of the working class might be. Right. Like the the simple way of putting it is uh, what you see with all the strikes happening right now in the United States and, and elsewhere. You know, when uh, when people don't show up, when they go on strike, it forces a confrontation with capital. That's like the one piece of power that you have. And it's so significant that even like, you know, presidential candidates suddenly feel compelled to think about labor for a minute because it's like a crisis point. Or uh, on the other hand, they even put a legislative end to those strikes because they are so, so potent. And I think Marx's theory is at least like, 
if it's not empirically empirically proven as a kind of prophecy of like what will happen, it is empirically proven by the kind of responses to the threat of it that that you see emerge, especially in you know developed capitalist economies. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I guess what I was thinking when I was reading this was just like, I mean, Marx and Engels, they go so far out of their way to tell you that capitalism is like, I mean, not to personify it too much. I mean, more than they already have, but like, it's a living, breathing thing. And, you know, they're telling you even in here that it's prone to crises. It's prone Mm -hmm. to having to confront with worker power. But I guess the thing that like I would um, if I had my like time machine that I would go back and tell them is that like capitalism is a lot more resilient than they they even think it is, which is like quite resilient. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. To to me, like reading this in 2023, it's it's interesting because I mean, like you're saying, like capitalism does have to confront like worker power for sure. And that's a great thing. Um, It's my favorite thing, in fact. (laughs) But I guess what. (laughs) what's interesting about it is that uh it's not like maybe like the shallow reading you might take from the manifesto that like well um capitalism creates its own its own grave diggers through the um the association of the working class or something is not quite as true as maybe some would think and uh that capitalism Mm -hmm. is even even more resilient than you might guess <laughs> or, or you might intuit from just like mm-hmm. empirical study or something. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, you know, it's, it's also uh, the way that capitalism organizes workers is uh, maybe a testament to that too. There's lots of Marxist literature on how one thing that Marx found really um, kind of valuable and, and important was that capitalism was organizing working people in ways that were also unique with respect to production. So like, what does a factory do? You know, when you work in a factory, you kind of associate with other people in particular ways. And Marx thought that that was a really profound kind of moment of like working class solidarity. You're kind of up next to people, you're working on the same line, you all have the same boss that you hate in the same way and so on and so forth. And so capitalism had already been kind of forming collective bonds among the working class. And, you know, you saw that even at the high point of maybe the the socialist movement in places like Europe and the United States. Um, it's uh, people who were in factories. You know, it's why the UAW today is still as militant as it is now, because they had sit down strikes, you know, 100 years ago. <laughs> so uh, there's something to that. But like, Fewer and fewer people work in in factory settings, especially in global north economies, but also in global south economies like the service industry is huge in a place like Brazil even and, um, you know, elsewhere, too. And uh, capitalism also is kind of organizing workers in different ways, right? Like when you uh, when you don't work on a factory line or you work from home or whatever, um, you don't have the same opportunities to share the the burdens and challenges and victories that you might Um, in other kind of, you know, working relationships. And I think all that to say, the idea is, uh, on the one hand, um, it sort of proves Marx and Engels' point that the bourgeoisie is always revolutionizing, you know, the the relations of production. Um, But it does that also in ways that split and atomize the working class. And uh, as you're saying, Matt, it's like, um, because it is so revolutionary, it even continues to sort of upset the other things that Marx and Engels might conclude about capitalism, that it's organizing workers in certain ways and it's also like organizing them away from solidarity in lots of important ways too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's move on a little bit and we can kind of um, make this one a bit shorter than the last conversation. Cause we did spend a lot of time talking about Colin the Caterpillar. Um, but the other point that I think <laughs> that, that Marx and Engels make in the manifesto that is quite interesting is really just regarding globalization and the central role of communication in that. Um, and if, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I think biographically, even, I mean, Marx is a guy who spends a lot of time writing newspapers <laughs> and news, newspaper <laughs> articles. Um, so of course he thinks that newspapers are definitely part of the solution, which is a very funny thing to think about now. Anyways, uh, in the manifesto, you have all kinds of, um, you have all kinds of bits and pieces that Marx kind of pieces together about the expansion of capitalism from one country to the next. Like there's, you know, there's no such thing as capitalism in one country. <laughs> it's always like something that's growing um, since the logic is about accumulation. So Marx kind of goes at that in a few different ways. But I think the thing that I really want to talk about is, is the, I don't know, the revolutionary potential of um, communication and like how that might work in, in struggles. 
So regarding globalization, Marx says that this union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry. So he's talking about like the the growth and the, the growth of like international capital, right? It's helped on because of the types of communication that are being produced, right? Um, but also it, it helps workers because uh, he says that it it takes the workers of different localities and, and he puts them in contact with one another. And he says it was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles, all of the same character into one national struggle between classes. But every class struggle is a political struggle. So this particular arrangement of globalization and capitalism is a thing that like post-Marxists and post-modern philosophers love to talk about, <laughs> like, like to no end. <laughs> they love to talk about globalization, what it means, how bad it is, and like, you know, the, the, how it's like, uh, you know, permanently fractured now in this like weird post-modern time that we live in. And there's, you know, there's definitely something, there's definitely something true about what Marx is saying that, um, capitalism is a global entity. You can't think about capitalism in any other way, you know, like what, whatever we're consuming in one country is produced in another. And, and those things just like necessarily go together and capitalism will like increase that production and increase that accumulation through, you know, constantly revolutionizing the means of production. Yes. But also constantly revolutionizing the means of communication between countries and entities and companies and organizations and managing stuff. Right. But the thing that Marx thinks also is that, well, workers can, you know, they'll learn how to write, they'll learn how to read, um, and they can kind of like concentrate their struggles into one working class sort of voice through, you know, newspaper, through telecommunications and so on. <laughs> and that is a really interesting idea because in 2023, it seems like that is a bonkers thing to say. <laughs> um or, or maybe just naive, at least, right? I mean, there's no shortage of, like, union newspapers or, like, Marxist newspapers or substacks or magazines that are telling you all kinds of radical ideas. That's that's totally true, right? Um, but I think the thing that always kind of sticks in my brain when I read this particular observation from Marx, that, like, you know, um, workers can use the media to, uh, you know, to centralize their struggle, to, you know, share those ideas which I think is true to a certain extent, right? Like things like, I don't know, <laughs> labor notes or whatever. It's great. <laughs> good labor reporting is good. I'm not going to disparage that at all. But also I think that there's like, um, there's something missing from that conversation. And I always think about my favorite postmodern philosopher, Jean Baudrillard, who has a really <laughs> interesting thesis about the media. And especially when it comes to like revolutionary movements, um, Basically, Jean Baudrillard, he says that like you would suspect that if you had um, an increased means of communication with other people, right, that it would mean that you could communicate more, more meaning, more, more things than ever. Right. You could connect with people in all kinds of different countries. All kinds of working people can, can make these connections and share their struggles and, you know, ultimately strategize against global capitalism and stuff. But what Baudrillard says is actually the opposite thing happens that like um because there's so many means of communication open to individuals um workers and corporations and governments and all kinds of other special interest groups um that there's like too much there's too much like meaning there's too much communication happening and because of that like meaning becomes extremely fragmented and things kind of like crumple in on themselves they implode and like you can't have sort of a coherent media ecosystem because there's just like too much going on. So, you know, like, for example, <laughs> like uh, Starbucks workers in Brazil would say, you know, we're dealing with this one thing with regards to uh, Starbucks. And then um, the idea would be that like Starbucks workers in the U.S. could also like coalesce around that particular idea or something. And while that might happen in some circumstances, you're going to also have 13,000 other like people giving you their insight on what this might mean and what you should do and like what's actually happening. Like, you know, you have some kind of like splinter Marxist group telling you that actually the unions who are trying to get you to do this are bad or something. And then you have, you know, a thousand different liberals telling you why you shouldn't go on strike and all, all of these kinds of things. Um, basically, the, the result is is not like a clear consensus about what you should be doing or or centralizing a particular narrative around struggle, but you have like too much to really take in. And when that happens, 
nothing happens. <laughs> I guess the thing that I like about postmodern philosophy and the way that like it interacts with this particular Marxist idea around communication is that it tells us that like media is not a way to centralize struggle, but it's just one more field of struggle itself. And that's something that Marx mm -hmm. obviously doesn't have the capacity for. And that's fine. It's not his fault. <laughs> Marx is not Jean Baudrillard and I'm not mad at him for it, but I do think that <laughs> there's like, for that. a lot to be, <laughs> I think so, but there's a lot to be gleaned from like postmodern philosophy that Marx just like can't give you. And that just doesn't really ring true about the world today. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Marx is also importantly a figure of the enlightenment in a complicated way, but in, in a pretty direct way, <laughs> I think as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, Matt and I both have backgrounds in studying media theory, so I guess it's no surprise that we have time for media theorists. But I think about, like, uh, Peter Sloterdijk, who is a politically right-wing person, whose politics I think you shouldn't like, but nevertheless has some pretty good insights about media. And he makes a similar point to Baudrillard, but in a different way, where he says the Enlightenment is basically about getting as much information as you possibly can because information is kind of scarce and, like, there are identifiable forces that are trying to stop you from getting it, whether it's the church or the state or whatever it might be. Um, the key is to kind of get the truth, to be enlightened, right? To sort of let things come out of the, the dark or what people are are hiding. And Sloterdijk is like, that kind of made sense during the Enlightenment, right? You got to free knowledge from uh, from those who are trying to hide it. But now uh, we have the, the opposite problem, the same way that Baudrillard is saying, where there's there's too much knowledge out there to have, um, and you could never know all of it. And Sloterdijk says the, the kind of challenge that it gives us is actually creating filters of, like, restrictions. Like, that is the key. How do you, uh, instead of being like, how do I get more and more information? The question is, how do I actually screen out more and more information so that I can actually get to what I need to know? And I think that's actually where something like the manifesto, though, does sort of help. Um, it's like trying to give you maybe a framework that you can use to screen out some of that information. You know, like when you understand that the world is cut up uh, into the bourgeoisie and the, the proletariat, that helps you then think about a story like the, you know, the Starbucks workers in Brazil in a way that is different from somebody who has no kind of... Um, hermeneutical lens, or at least one that they're not aware of, uh, that they're kind of reading these stories through. So I think it's sort of a both and thing. It's like, it's true that I think the postmodernists are right uh, about that. Like the, the flood of communications creates more problems than it solves, especially when it comes to struggle. Um, and anybody who has ever used the internet, I guess, probably knows that, <laughs> you know, it's no surprise. But on the other hand, like, uh, it does give other opportunities to maybe connect with um, parts of a narrative that you have, like you, you kind of have maybe some general ways of thinking about the world, but you don't really know how they work out in particular. And those communications facilitate a lot of those particulars. Like, you know, I think about uh, in my own work, when you think about having solidarity with people in the global South, like one way that I do that is by following them on the internet, by having, you know, webinars and zoom calls and all these kinds of things where it's like not feasible to travel to all these different countries and kind of share life with them. But you can kind of have these different exchanges mediated through technologies. And it, it takes having like, I guess some kind of framework or reason for which you're actually doing those things or following those people. So all that to say, like the postmodernists are right. There's too much meaning, but the one thing that Marx is still right about is that like, you still have to have some way of uh, sorting that meaning. And uh, the manifesto is, I think giving some of those kind of filters, like it's providing some of those categories that you can use to, uh, to push that meaning through. I think that's right. I mean, that's like a, <laughs> that's a great pitch for the ways that ideology is actually useful. <laughs> like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're at least recognizing that you, you have a particular ideology or that you have a, a particular set of commitments that you're like not really willing to budge on. Um, I mean, whether they're like really explicitly Christian commitments or if they're Marxist commitments or whatever, right. It's just like, you're willing to listen to these particular stories and accept this particular reading of stories. And it's also a commitment to like, maybe being wrong about some things and like whose side are you willing to air being wrong on? And mm -hmm. to me, that seems kind of easy enough from my perspective, at least that like, I'm always going to be willing to <laughs> read the story in a way that privileges the poor or that, you know, believes um, 
the thing that will empower the working class the most or something. If in the end I'm wrong about it because of some misinformation, I'm pretty happy with being wrong about it as long <laughs> as I kind of stuck to my guns, which is, uh, I don't know, not always a great solution for meaning in media, but like it's basically all you got. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, well, there's lots of other things here in the manifesto that we could talk about. We have, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes all because of Colin the Caterpillar. And I think that's fine. Um, one thing we probably should talk about is maybe the religion stuff that comes up in it, because one big question is how do you have a committed fidelity to a text that basically is telling you that your religion is completely wrong? (laughs) I think that is maybe something worth talking about. Uh, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Like, it's maybe the easy answer is to be like, I don't know, whatever. Marx is just wrong about religion and I don't listen to him. Um, that is how I think a lot of people do square it. But I think there's maybe some more interesting ways to parse that out as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Marx has an allergy towards religion and I think that's fair enough. And like, I think writing it off is okay in a lot of ways. But also, I think we should also interrogate the ways that Marx is actually right about religion and that's also worth thinking about. I mean, um, if there's any podcast out there that is committed to Christianity, but also extremely critical of it, it's ours. And I think that's a great, (laughs) (laughs) a great way to be in the world (laughs) that uh, Christianity is good and bad all at the same time. And, uh, you know, you got to think through both sides of it. And I think that's fair enough. Um, I don't know, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, you know, like you said, I think the key is to say, what does Marx get right about religion? Because like we said earlier, it's not like he didn't have the opportunity to encounter Christian socialism. I mean, sometimes you hear this argument that like Marx and Engels, if only they had met some good Christians, then they wouldn't have thought the way that they thought. And I think it's actually the opposite. (laughs) It's like because they actually met kind of a lot of very good Christians and nevertheless, capitalism was still going on. They were like, this is clearly not sufficient or not enough. And I think there's some interesting reasons for that, you know, and and they have some like, I don't know, like uh, challenging words for sure. Like uh, I'll just read a piece here in the manifesto. They say nothing is easier than to give Christian asceticism a socialist tinge. Has not Christianity declaimed against private property, against marriage, against the state? Has it not preached in the place of these charity and poverty, celibacy and mortification of the flesh, monastic life and mother church? Christian socialism is but the holy water with which the priest consecrates the heart burnings of the aristocrat. And the argument being like, yeah, it's pretty easy to say that, you know, there's a kind of socialist angle to Christianity. But nevertheless, like when you say that you're kind of just baptizing the the ruling class or baptizing like a kind of like aristocratic or highbrow or noble version of socialism that is pretty disconnected to the lives of actual working class people. And I think that's actually really important because uh, while I want to say a lot more than Marx and Engels do about Christianity and religion and about Christian socialism and so on, you know, you can maybe like, at least for me, I have a lot of like stock characters in my head or folks who kind of, I guess, uh, are are still targets of this kind of critique. (laughs) You know, like, um, man, if I had a dollar for like every Anglican I've ever read who's like talking about why the Anglican church and like going to liturgy is like the true socialist thing to do. I'd probably be a rich person. Uh, And I think it's important to recognize that there's a reason Marx felt that was not enough, you know? And, and that reason is that capitalism is just not, uh, not as uh, dealing with capitalism isn't as like morally bound or kind of noble as those traditions might have. And insofar as Christianity is still a vehicle for preserving the logic of feudalism, which privileges the church in in some bad ways, you know, can privilege a certain kind of clericalism, uh, can also preserve even like feudal uh, modes of authority and kind of hasn't quite caught up in other ways. Like that is just undeniably true. You know, it's a it's kind of like a liability that the church is always going to take with it. And I think it's important to have somebody like Marx sort of explain what that liability is and and how it works and sort of challenge Christians to be, you know, adequate to that sort of critique. Yeah, I think that's all true. And also you can't say that this has not been a productive disagreement either that, you know, Marx has these pretty, you know, biting critiques of religion and in response, um, I mean, in the long form of history, (laughs) You get things like liberation theology and worker priests and you get Christians Mm -hmm. who are engaged in really dealing with the work, like, you know, with the working class and also 
like explicitly fighting the capitalist class. So it's not like this, um, this call or this challenge or critique from Marx has gone, I think unanswered or unthought about by Christians who are interested in socialism. Um, so often say like, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a consideration worth dealing with. And it's also a consideration worth like thinking through like what's happened in light of it, you know, like how, how have Christians who are deeply committed to socialism really like, metabolize that critique and uh i don't know you see a lot of different things um that would really challenge marx in the end i think yeah exactly and maybe that's the real question is like what is the provocation of the manifesto make possible in the world and you can say that about lots of things politics economics but when it comes to christianity it does make possible these alternative forms of of a more radical christian vision and maybe that's to the uh, the important thing for Christians is, I guess, to to wrestle with the critique, not in such a way that you're like, I guess I just can't be a Christian anymore necessarily, although I don't know if people make that choice. I get it. <laughs> I wouldn't blame them. Uh, but in a way that's kind of like what what kind of Christianity would I have to have that would be able to, um, you know, absorb this kind of critique in an authentic way and sort of point towards something different and really deal with the problems that, that a text like the Manifesto lays out. And that's exactly what you get in liberation theologians, right? This uh this sort of acceptance of the challenge to um, to really get it, to really understand what is oppressing people, what are the conditions that make and keep people poor, and how do we sort of deal with them as Christian people. So, yeah, I agree. That that, that idea of a, it being a productive disagreement, I think, is a good one. Yeah, thanks. It is a good one. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, let's move on to the last section. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in the manifesto that I think is really interesting that warrants our longer conversation, but listen, we can't, we, the, the caterpillar got to us. Um, but the last part I thought was, that was interesting to talk about is, uh, the very beginning of the second session, the second section of the manifesto, uh, the proletarians and communists section. Um, and it opens with just drawing out like what's the relationship between communists and the proletarians as a whole. That's the, that's the big question. Um, and uh, the answer is kind of interesting and it kind of runs counter to maybe like the ways that communism plays in the imaginations of people. But I'll just read this bit here. In what relation do the in what relation do the communists stand to the proletarians as a whole? The communists do not form a separate party opposed to other working class parties. They have no interest separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles of their own, which to shape and mold the proletarian movement. And then later on, Marx writes, the communists, therefore, are on one hand, practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class party of every country, that section which pushes forward all others. On the other hand, theoretically, they have over the great mass of the proletariat, the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement. So I think this is an interesting section because this is a question that is like constantly coming up on the left, I think in the U S and probably everywhere. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, it's like if you walk into a room and you start talking about whether or not the DSA should like break entirely with the Democrats or should leftists in the U S vote for Cornell West or <laughs> should the PSL bother running socialist candidates? Everyone's going to be mad at you. <laughs> you're, you're not going to be invited to the party anymore. <laughs> you're not going to be invited to the communist party. You're not going to be invited to the normal person party. None of it. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the left has a, like a big history. I think of like thinking about these, like, you know, the party formation or being a part of another party, a working class party and so on. And like failing, I think is maybe <laughs> the best way to put it. Um, I mean, sometimes succeeding, I guess. Um, but, but always with lots of weird conditions. I always think of the, uh, the example of Cuba and like the July 26th movement, um, you know, Fidel and the guerrillas are marching across uh, Cuba and like f fighting the Batista regime everywhere and they get towards Havana and, um, you know, the Communist Party is like, well, I don't know if we support you. Like, <laughs> <Right>. probably not. <laughs> and it's just like, I guess that is such a such a funny example and like one that seems particularly characteristic of these struggles between uh, taking up the party formation, taking up like, you know, other types of formations of like political, uh, like, you know, revolutionary political movements and so on. And just like, I, it's just a good demonstration of how 
the left has like not done this well or like just can't get this right or is constantly trying trying to like learn and struggle through it. And um, I don't know. An interesting thing, though, that that Marx draws out and he, he kind of is trying to explain that communists are just going to be at the forefront of the movement and always like pushing things forward because they know how to figure the situation out. Uh, and then, you know, now that we've lived <laughs> a few hundred years <laughs> after the fact, uh, we've seen communists get it wrong a lot. And uh, I don't know, just a nice a nice dose of humility, um, <laughs> maybe uh, taking us all down a peg. It's true, though, I will say in defense of uh, the communist failures, um, one oh, here we go. <laughs> the communists, of yeah, sorry. Uh, one reason for those failures is also precisely because they were so successful and they met with a stronger resistance, you know, like um, I think about like the struggle in the U S which had to be actively legislated against and people had to be imprisoned and even murdered and so on. Um, and some people who weren't even communists, but kind of were labeled as fellow travelers and all of that uh, fairly or unfairly in different cases. And I think it's just one of those things where, uh, the key to me in the manifesto is Marx is saying there's you should want to be the kind of person who is like at the head of the struggle, you know, like you're trying to push it forward, not out of like pride or because you like feel like you should be a leader, but because it's like you have an understanding of what what needs to be done, you know, and uh, and and why things are the way that they are. And I think that, you know, litigating the whole history of communism would be a lot, a lot more than an hour in this podcast totally. or, or whatever. Sure. But like that, that kind of um, commitment, I guess, to being at the front in whatever form that takes, whether it takes the form of a, an organized party or like something else, which it, it often does. Um, you know, that also, if you do it right, is going to like get you in trouble, too. And uh, maybe you could say that, like, there are miscalculations about whether or not the working class is ready or something. But, you know, like, I just think about like, you know, when you think about somebody like Fred Hampton, it's like you only get assassinated that young if you're a real problem. And uh, that's, uh, I guess, on the one hand, it's like a failure or maybe better expressed as a, a defeat, I guess. Um, but on the other hand, it's kind of like it couldn't have been otherwise. And, you know, more more power to Fred Hampton, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just like, I don't know, it, it's uh, in the manifesto, the way that Marx puts it, it does seem like so clean and tidy that like, well, communists are just at the front of all of this, right. you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but it is like you're saying quite a bit messier than you would imagine um, you know whatever whether it is like repression or it is just like through other types of mistakes um, yeah I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that like you know there's a there's a real strong feeling that communists have the answer in the manifesto and in my life experience and just like learning about revolutionary socialist movements it's like you know communists sometimes have the answer right right and <laughs> And a lot of other times they have a lot of very bad ideas. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And like, yeah, uh, in defending the or maybe thinking of like another way of considering the failures, I think there's also lots of communist failures that are just like <laughs> failures with for which there is no defense, you know, like a bad idea, a bad policy, yeah. bad <laughs> getting in with bad people, like not being smart enough to uh, to get a certain thing done or whatever. Like, you know, those examples are 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 plenty, but. Yeah, uh, <laughs> would it would be great if Marx was right, I guess, that that was just how it is. But that's also the kind of thing you get in a manifesto, I guess. All right, Dean, we've we've gotten here to the end. Colin the Caterpillar can't stop us, um, <laughs> even though I'm still <laughs> thinking a lot about him. Uh, what what do you think uh, now that we've talked through some of these big themes in the manifesto and I guess fidelity towards the manifesto like what does it mean it's just such a it's such a funny thing I mean it's it's true of Christianity as well but it's a funny thing to be like you know identifying really strongly with um you know Christianity um and also like fundamentally <laughs> being disgusted with a lot of Christianity <laughs> and then and then also in the same way like um identifying really strongly with like the communist movement, the socialist movement, the, like the, like other types of leftist movements. Um, but then also like finding, <laughs> you know, so much wrong with it mm -hmm. at the same time. I don't know. Uh, how do you uh, square all that in your brain? <laughs> well, I guess I square it the same way that you uh, have already suggested by analogy, you know, like, I don't know if, uh, if as a Christian, I can also find ways to remain, 
committed to the kind of vision that Jesus puts forward in the world, despite the fact that like Christians completely <laughs> ruined the planet, <laughs> like, you know, colonized uh, the majority of the landmass of, of the globe and all that kind of stuff, then like, I can probably also find ways to, uh, to think about what, what kind of vision is still being cast in something like the manifesto, even if it has its own problems or, sends us off in some bad directions too and all that kind of thing. Like, I guess uh, the the key is to say that fidelity is never a sort of rote, like repetition of of terms. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, China Mievel talking about the text being a, a kind of catechesis or like a catechism. And I think it's a good analogy because as with any catechism, if you learn a catechism, even for Christianity, and that's all you ever do. And you can just repeat what the church teaches about the Trinity or something. And that's it. That's like pretty meaningless to have. Uh, but if you learn a catechism and that becomes a way to then explore the world and think more critically and more deeply and kind of sends you off in a direction that even maybe uh, allows you to think critically about the catechism you've received and sort of receive it in a more mature way in your life and so on, then you know, that's a, a better relationship to that kind of process. And I think the same way about fidelity, like having faithfulness to something isn't having the most boring repetition of it or kind of doubling down on every point that something makes, but really being willing to kind of, you know, uh, as as a professor I once had at, at the Institute for Christian Studies would always say, uh, finding ways to change so that you can remain the same. <laughs> I think like that's the key. Uh, I don't know, for me at least, like when I think about being faithful to Christianity or having a fidelity to Marxism, it's it's always about finding the ways to uh, to pivot in ways that are still continuous with like the the vision or spirit that's cast at the bottom. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. The thing that my brain keeps going back to and and like also resisting is a weird a weird postmodern niche. So right after I was done with my undergrad, I got really into reading. Um, this one particular Italian philosopher named Gianni Vadimo, who's a, a guy that you and I have talked about before. He uh, just he is, died. Um, he did just die. That's true. Yeah. Um, he was a Christian. He was a socialist of some variety. He was like an elected parliamentarian in Italy, a, a really complicated person, something, but, but also like really engaging with like uh postmodern ideas around faith. And, uh, one idea he like that he's like you know pretty famous I think for pushing is this idea of, of like uh, the the weakness of particular ideas or holding an idea but you only do you only hold it weakly a weak type of faith a weak type of like you know socialist politics or something and I feel like there's something about that that I find really appealing that like you have a, a certain amount of epistemic humility that you are committed to a particular like discourse and framework for thinking about the world, whether it's through faith or politics, but you're also not like, you know, ready to like uh, say that you have the final word on that thing. And anyways, all I'm trying to say is there's something, there's something I think I like about that particular type of, um, of way of like holding yourself in the world. Um, at the, at the same time, I feel like there's a type of wishy-washy about wishy-washiness about that. That is like, first of all, rhetorically unhelpful and like unconvincing to get people to like, you know, go to your rally or whatever. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> um, but also like, you know, maybe just not even good strategically if you're always second guessing yourself or not willing to like, um, throw yourself headlong into a particular struggle or situation, you know, you like, you don't want to be like, um, yeah, I believe in unionism. Um, I believe in organizing my workplace, but only weekly. Like, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, fundamentally bad. So um, I guess, like, uh, the tension I'm trying to live in is trying to think about, like, you know, how do you be um, how do you be open to the idea that you could be wrong and that um, you come from a long line of people who have, like, historically been wrong about things uh, while maintaining you still think this is the right way to, like, act in the world and mm -hmm. the right way to think about politics? It's just, like, a, a tough tension um you know but like i feel like letting letting the doubt get too big is also unproductive so yeah. maybe maybe being boldly wrong is great sin boldly the matt comes out as a true lutheran at the end of this podcast for sure uh yeah <laughs> there we I, go. I, I think too i mean being a christian and on 
being interested in Marxism is uh, is a helpful, productive tension, too, because I guess, like, if push comes to shove, I'm more a Christian than I am a Marxist, um, even though I think push doesn't need to come to shove very often. But, you know, when it does, uh, <laughs> it's like that's the kind of moment where at least it helps to kind of bounce those things off of each other and, and let them trouble each other. And maybe that helps create something that's not like a weak version of each of them, but more like a, a kind of porous version of, of them both, you know, that's willing to recognize that like, sometimes you gotta, you've got to go elsewhere to, um, to find something more, you know, Marx doesn't know every single thing there is to know about justice or about capitalism for that matter. And neither does Christianity know everything there is to know, or at least articulate everything that there is to articulate about those struggles too. So I don't know, maybe that, maybe it helps to just like (laughs) have one foot in one bad tradition and the other foot in another bad tradition. And you can just kind of like let them figure each other out. That's true. Um, that makes a lot of sense because like, I don't know what, else, what do you even have other than bad traditions? It's not like yeah, you exactly. just jump into a better one. doesn't even make sense. This is all you got. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. If you join us at the $2 level or more, you can get access to our great Patreon only discord channel and have fun conversations and share good memes and be a part of a community of people who are interested in this podcast. And it's <laughs> pretty nice. All right. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro music is by the logical spoon and we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would 